It's a beautiful morning out there today, isn't it? It's a great day to be praising the Lord. And uh, just hearing uh, that song and thinking of the words of that song, it's the same God that's reigning here that's reigning all over the world. Amen? And uh, what an exciting thought. And uh, welcome to, Wish to uh, Missions Month. And uh, we have been highlighting different missionaries all over the world and doing different things and serving the Lord in different places where the Lord's doing some great things. Today it's a special privilege for me because... Uh, being the new guy around here, I don't always get the opportunity to know the missionaries beforehand because I am learning the new missionaries' names and, and who the church has been supporting. And, uh, but this is a missionary that I know pretty well. In fact, um, his five children call me Uncle Dave, if that gives you any clue. And uh, now they're, not, they're not my nephews and nieces for real, but, uh, but they know me pretty well. Uh, Cam uh, Wolford and uh, Carrie Wolford went to Baptist Bible College at the same time that, uh, that I went to Baptist Bible College out in Clarkson, Pennsylvania. And so I knew them a little bit there, but really we got to, to know each other in Costa Rica. And uh, I, uh, when I went to Costa Rica, they came from Ecuador to Costa Rica. In fact, I think our first, uh, our first uh, team meeting was the same first team meeting with you guys. And, and, uh, and so we just started talking ministry philosophy. And you ever have one of those situations where you just know you hit it off really well? We have the same missions or, or same ministry philosophy, but different skill sets and different gifts. And so uh, we work together with them. And uh, the plan, I won't tell too much of, uh, of uh, what's going on. Let, let, I'll let Cam share. But we work together in a church plant and uh, planted a church in Costa Rica. Uh, but just a fantastic couple, fantastic family. And so uh, I'd like you to, to welcome Cam uh, and Carrie Wilford today. our weaknesses and increase our strengths. So we were very privileged, and I know you guys will be very privileged over the years to come to have them as part of your ministry here. And we're excited about what God's doing here through them. Uh, we know that God's church goes forward, and He's involved in, in building His church all over the world. And we know that Grand Rapids or in Paraiso, Costa Rica, or in Ecuador, it's, it's all the same. God's involved in doing a great work. And we know he'll continue to do that until the day he returns and calls us. And we pray that that might be today before winter comes. Because I don't think I can take a Michigan winter. So we'll pray that way. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 21 years. Uh, this year, this coming year will be 22. We have five children. Our oldest is 20. And our youngest are twins. That will be nine next week, I believe. Or in two weeks. I'm a father of five, so I get the birthdays mixed up. But we've been very privileged over, I believe, since 1995 to be involved in, in missions. Uh, we've been involved in five church plants uh, between here, Mexico, Costa Rica, and in Ecuador. And so God has given us the privilege of seeing in different cultures uh, some, some great things, his hand at work. Many people think that Latin America, uh, if you go south of the border, everybody speaks Spanish. They all eat the same food and they all act the same way. But it's amazing that it doesn't take place that way. Ecuador, Costa Rica, Mexico are very distinctly different. And even the language, Spanish, is very different. And so we've had to adjust as a family between different cultures, uh, eating different foods. In Ecuador, they eat totally different foods than they do in Costa Rica. Uh, 
in Mexico, you, you're a little bit more familiar with that with all the Mexican restaurants around. But we've had the opportunity to experience different cultures and also the opportunity to, to minister in different cultures and, and see God reach different people groups. Our, our focus has always been the local church. From the very beginning, our desire was to see God raise up a church where there did not exist, where people were, were needing a local church to, to understand, not only come to Christ, but understand, grow, and be mobilized into a world that needs the message. And so we had the opportunity uh, from the very beginning in our ministry to recognize that the local church is, is God's basic plan for all the world. To the local church is the hope of the world. We recognize that uh, the local church becomes the platform by which he proclaims the gospel out throughout the whole world. I came to Christ when I was 17 years old. I was raised in a, in a Roman Catholic family in, in the Northeast in New England. Uh, when my parents became believers, uh, my sisters were older and out of the house. But I re realized right away how important the local church was for my parents. Uh, my parents became part of a, a small community of believers. And they became everything closer than blood. Closer than blood. And so when I came to Christ a little bit later, I fell in love with the church. A place where people could come from different cultures, different walks of life, different economic stratus, and they could come together. People who shouldn't be together because of color, because of culture, because of finances, but Christ brought them together and they could sit down and worship and share a meal and glorify Him together. That's the power of the church. That's the power of the church. And so we went into Ecuador and began to... Uh, began to give out the seed of the gospel and see people come to Christ and see people come together. Uh, it's an amazing, it's a supernatural thing, and that's what the church is all about. It's all about a supernatural act of God doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. First, saving us, and then secondly, changing our culture, bringing us together. And we recognize that our culture is our beliefs and our behaviors. And pre-Christ, our beliefs and our behaviors are very different. But when we come to Christ, our culture becomes the same. We share the same culture now with people all over the world because we share beliefs and behavior that are dictated by one king, one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. And so as we began to see these churches come together, we took a very traditional model uh, to Ecuador and then to Costa Rica where uh, the model was based on American model, the American model. And the American model is, is God has blessed us as a culture for many years, and so we have a lot of infrastructure. We build buildings, we build buildings, we support staff, we have money to do that. But in many places around the world, that does not exist. That does not exist. So we began to question the church. For example, we, uh, one of the churches that we left in Ecuador, uh, we left the pastor with a, with a deacon board. And that pastor struggled for a long time without the support. you got to understand that in many countries around the world, you don't have the support network. You don't have the Christian radio or the Christian TV or the bookstores or anything that would support you and your growth in, in Christ. And so as a pastor, to minister within that, you're alone. You're an island. You're an island. In, in the city of Cuenca where we ministered, less than 2% of the population would be considered anything other than Catholic. And so within that, you'd have a group of people that everything from Mormons to Jehovah's Witnesses to Lutherans to Baptists, all would be, would be clumped together. So you, you have to understand that the group that would truly be what we would call born again and worshiping according to the scriptures was a very small group very limited group. So the pastor within that context was very lonely and very isolated. When we moved up to Costa Rica and began to work with Dave and Monica and planting uh, Iglesia Bautista Roca Viva, uh, a Living Rock Baptist Church, Dave and I began to think through a paradigm shift, the need to change things a little bit because our desire is to see churches plant churches. Many times we send out men and women and we call them church planters. 
Biblically, we never find that terminology in Scripture. And we understand that men do not plant churches. God, through his church, plant churches. Churches plant churches. That's the, that's the pattern we see in the Scriptures. Churches planting churches. What happens is many times we send out missionaries from our churches in the States. And uh, I grew up listening to music. Many of you have done the same. And we know that uh, groups that have one hit... They're called one-hit wonders, right? You understand that? One-hit wonders. They have one song that becomes, they're known for that song, and they're not known for anything else. Well, many times when we send out missionaries around the world, that's what happens in missions. The missionary goes out, plants that one church, walks away, and that church remains isolated and into survival mode, and they maintain themselves. But they do not multiply. They do not reproduce. And so over the years, we begin to recognize that even in America, in sending out a missionary as we do many times, we don't do it with the idea of creating churches that multiply. And so as we began to, to form questions and look for answers, Dave and I sat down and started to think, okay, if our desire is to see churches multiply, it's not about infrastructure growing big. It's about churches mobilizing, what we call bleeding, going out and spreading the gospel out, starting churches, not just in their local area and their communities, but sending out and having a vision to send out missionaries around the world. What do we need to do to help a church become a mobilizer, a church that multiplies? And we came up with basically two attributes that we've been working on over the last few years. And that is, number one, you need to create a, a polity, a church government that's easily reproducible. And so many times when we set up a pastor by himself and we pay him a salary in places like Latin America, what happens is that what I was instructed is that when you want to have a church plant become independent and, and have that church turned over to a national, you have to measure your church planting or the independence of that church by finances. When you have enough money to pay a pastor, you can leave. You can leave. But realize that that's a terrible, terrible way to, to measure whether or not a church is ready to stand on their own. We go back to the book of Acts, and we recognize, and we go back there many times, and we, we talk about the the fire that we see in the first century church and, and the passion and the sacrifice. And, and then we, we set it aside and we seem to think that, you know what, that was good for them because that was a transition period and the church was getting started. But that's not a pattern for us. That's not a pattern for us. But I think that we've gotten way too far away from that. That's exactly the pattern for us. That passion, that sacrifice, that church was set up as a model for us to follow not something for us to look back and place a trophy or a monument and say, well done, that's great, but that's not for us. And so we began to think through, what do you need? You need, number one, you need a, the idea that men and women can be raised up as servant leaders. The church has to be equipped to see itself as a platform, a, a center for ministry, a place where people are launched out. Many times we would go back and we'd talk about the Old Testament and, and God taking his, his people to the promised land. And when they got to the border of the promised land and they looked over, he never intended for them to see a place where they would find refuge, but a place where they would live in front of a world that was lost. And it would be a launching pad for his truth to go out that the whole world would see that there's only one God. There's only one God. There are many gods, but there's only one true God because there are, all the others are false. And they were to use the, the promised land as a launching pad for people to go out and preach and to live the truth. And when he started the New Testament church, the New Testament church was to be a place, a platform, a group of people, a community that would come together and they would live that out in front of a world that's lost. And that they would be equipped 
to go out and prepare others and to, to preach to others the word of God. The church was never supposed to become a refuge, a place where things are maintained, but rather a place where things are mobilized. People are mobilized into action. We are always to be on a war footing. We're in a battle that will not end until he comes and calls us home. And if that is the truth and we preach that and we sing that, then the church must have the mentality that every person should be equipped to be a servant leader. A leader that can go out into their communities, into their homes, and begin to mobilize and begin to reach a world that's lost and needs the gospel. And so we, we, we began to think how we could do that best. And first of all, we formed a mentality that the church is capable of training and mobilizing. We, we looked at passages that you're very familiar with in Acts chapter 4 when it says... When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, they were amazed because they were the guys that were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. They were the men and women that were supposed to be the ones that knew something. But as these men stood before them and and proclaimed with confidence, with authority, the truth, the only thing that they could say was, wow, these guys were, were, were with Jesus. They walked with Christ. They walked with Christ. And so they were mobilized into a way that went way beyond their capabilities. Way beyond their experience. And so the church, the first century church understood that every believer is to be a mobilized believer. Every person that comes to Christ has been equipped by the Holy Spirit with gifts. Has been given abilities. And has been given the word of God. And through the training of the local church, can now go out and be mobilized. Many times we've told people that I personally do not like the classifications of saying you're a missionary. We use titles to separate, to diminish. You don't find the word missionary in the scriptures. Messenger we find. But the fact of the matter is that we're not supposed to be doing over there what we're not doing here, Right? Every one of us has been called and placed upon us the same expectations. The same expectations that have been given to you that have been given to me through the scriptures. The call of God, there is one mission through the word. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one mission. And that's been our desire to to develop. That mission is, is to share the message of redemption. That God has a plan and has a way. That he desires to touch every bit, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl with the gospel. And to give them a future in eternity. So the, the expectation is the same. So we said the local church is capable of doing that. We can raise up men and women. We don't need external institutions. We don't need them. We don't have them in many places. So we have to give the confidence to the local church to be able to raise up its own leaders, its own pastors, its own missionaries, its own leaders from within that can sustain the church and then go from without and multiply. And so we formed the idea that with basic training, so right now we have local church institutes. We have a website up online that is called servantleaders.com in Spanish, siervolideres.com, if you speak Spanish. You can go there, and we're placing all of our material on there that the church can have the confidence to take off uh, materials to train. We're running uh, an institute right now in Costa Rica. We're running an institute in Ecuador. Uh, it's partially running in Mexico. Uh, we have a couple sites here in the United States that are running with the idea that the church can train up its own leaders. The church is capable. The church is capable. The other mentality we, we began to form was pulling together as a team. We understand that Christ never sent out men, never sent out people by themselves. He always did it in groups. 
We always did it in groups. We understand that it's, it's clear in Scripture that a cord of three is much stronger than, a, than one. And so the mentality is that we need to create a polity, an idea of a structure within a church that multiple men come together to work together to diminish their weaknesses and increase their strengths. And we do that by taking away the financial stress, creating a structure that's based on lay, a lay leadership. A lay leadership means that these men and women have a job outside of church that support them. So in Costa Rica, we have a team of men that come together. In Ecuador, we have a team of men that come together. In Mexico, they're forming a team of men that come together that are engineers, that are carpenters, that are school teachers. They come together as pastors, as a team of pastors, and they guide and lead his church. And then when they raise up new men and women within the church through the training and through the mobilization, they form a new team of lay leaders that can now go out and plant more churches. And that's fully, totally reproducible. You don't need resources. You don't need funds. You just need men and women who are willing to go. And so we are seeing that in Ecuador. We're seeing that in Costa Rica. We're seeing that in Mexico. We desire to see it all over the world. I believe the day is going to come when the church will be faced with a, with a point in time when the resources will be taken away from us here in the United States. I believe that the time is coming when our, our paradigm is shifting totally to where our infrastructure Sending our children off to Bible colleges, for example. Our daughter went uh, last year, finished up her associates at Baptist Bible College, $26,000 a year. That's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. And the church stands back, and we've outsourced all of this to different places. Well, I think the church is capable of doing it here. The church was meant to be a launching pad. And it, with our ministry, we, we're calling ourselves servant leaders, siervo líderes, the desires to help and mobilize churches with the same mentality so that they can go out, they can have the confidence and understand that they exist to complete the mission of God. They exist to believe, to go out, start new churches, and send missionaries. This past, past month, we uh, were able to see two young ladies, professionals, uh, go from Ecuador up to Costa Rica. They've been there a little over a month and a half, and they will be doing a two-year missionary project. They came up, supported from their church in Ecuador, to partner with Roca Viva in Costa Rica. They're helping them to, to strengthen the church, to help form women's ministries, children's ministries, and outreach. That's what it's all about. We want to see that happen because we know that our day in the United States is coming. And there are many countries we can't go into right now. But we need to be involved in mobilizing Latin America. They can go into Iran, they can go into to the Middle East, they can go into places in Africa where you and I cannot go into, or where it's very difficult and will become more difficult. And so our desire is to give them the confidence to plant churches, give them the confidence to mobilize and send missionaries. Uh, I believe after just a little bit you'll see a, a video here of some of the men that we work with, some of the men that Dave has worked with, giving testimony, talking about the ministry and the confidence they have in the ministry. Uh, I would encourage you... Uh, in the entranceway, we have uh, little folders that explain more of the ministry. Please take them. Uh, please take as many as you want. We have a lot of those. Hand them out. And take time to see our video as well, the, the church planting video of, the, of two churches, one in Ecuador and one in Costa Rica. Thank you again for the opportunity. And, and if you have any questions, uh, I know I talk very fast. So if you have any questions that you want to uh, have clarity on or want to go a little deeper, we're more than happy to spend time after the service and share that with you.
Thank you, Cam, for sharing with us this morning. Our passion is to, uh, to mobilize. When I fell in love with the church at almost age 18, it was under the premise that the church was God's plan. Church was all about each one of us becoming so much more than we are by ourselves. That coming together, we form something that's far greater than we could ever imagine. That God working in us was not enough. It was God working through us that closed the circle. And so when you look at men and women around the world in places like Latin America and, and Asia and Africa, wherever it may be, God's at work in moving people forward. God's at work in, in working in them so that they can be used by him to work through them. And sometimes that means great sacrifice. In our culture today, we would probably look back and say, if we were to give a list of our values, our values would, some of the top ones would be safety and security. Safety and security would be an American society that we'd say, we do everything possible to take risk out of our lives. We don't like the word risk. Some of you might be entrepreneurs. I, I, entrepreneurs. I grew up with an entrepreneur in my, in my house, and his desire was to start new businesses. And every time he started a new business, it meant a lot of risk. But the majority of people don't want to take risks. We want to be safe. And we don't only want to be safe, but we want security. We want to put roots down, and we want to build up around us and our families an atmosphere where nothing from the outside can, can cause us harm. We want to do everything possible. It's amazing to look at studies and think that as a culture, we're one of the most, if not the most, affluent cultures. And we have in our, in our abilities everything we need to make ourselves safe and secure. But there's a great sickness that just has flooded across our nation. It's called worry and anxiety. More people are taking pills and spending nights sleepless because they're worried about not being secure not being safe. And the fact of the matter is that if we look throughout Scripture, when Christ called the first apostles and said, come follow me, it was all about risk. It was all about risk. He taught them from the very beginning. He says, if any of you want to be my followers, you have to what? You have to turn from your selfish ways. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He went on to say that nobody can be greater than the master. And we understand that if Christ did not have a place to lay his head, if he walked, I've never seen a picture painted with Christ bringing behind him a mule with all of his possessions. If he had to sacrifice at that level and risk it all, how much more does he ask from us? And I think that as believers in today's world, we've taken out the risk factor. We don't value the risk. And we place much more on safety and security, and yet we spend so much of our time worrying and in anxiety. And we don't understand that if we surrender our lives over to Him and place ourselves into His hands and are willing to risk, that we can be in a no better place, no safer place. Amen? Amen. This morning I want to quickly, because He left me, I left myself five minutes, I was like, I don't know if I can do it in five minutes. You willing to stay a little longer? Sure. Christ said in Matthew, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, must be your servant. 
I believe firmly that the moment you were born again, the, more, the moment you were quickened and placed into the family of God, God placed on you an expectation that now you would become a leader. You would become a world changer. You would become an activator. Now, some of us are more apt at that because of our temperaments and our mouths are bigger. Some people, because of your temperament, you're meeker and quieter. It does not matter. This is not based on temperament. This is based on calling. I believe firmly that throughout Scripture, the New Testament, Christ repeats, Paul repeats, Peter repeats, John repeats, over and over again, that each one of us has been given the job to be an activator, to be a life changer, been flushed into the culture, into the world. We were not taken out of here. We were not beamed out, even though it would have been great if the moment we became a Christian, God just beamed us out of here and saved us from the Michigan winners and the sicknesses and the problems. You see, I keep going back to the Michigan winners. I'm not looking for but he didn't. He left us here. And he left us here with purpose, and that is to fulfill the mission that he has clearly set in place from Genesis all the way through Revelations. And that is to redeem a world that is lost and going to hell. And each one of us carries the same responsibility to participate in that mission. The problem is that that taste takes a great amount of risk. That if we're going to be part of that process, we cannot be greater than the master. We have to submit ourselves to understand that, as John said in 1 John, he said, anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ must walk, must live as he has lived. If that is true, he's not talking philosophically, he's not talking only in truth, he's talking in practical life every day. We must live, we must walk, we must act, we must suffer, we must risk as he did. Because that's where the power of God shows up. When we come to a point, as Paul did and said, I am nothing, he is everything. In my weakness, he shows up to be great. But as Americans, we do everything possible to limit those moments. We do not want those moments to, to show up. And so we have, as I was taught, to prepare for retirement from the age of 25. To make sure you have three months of savings in your account. To make sure that when you're without, without work, the money's there. That if Ebola is in Texas, I'm on Amazon.com and I'm buying those masks because I'm anticipating that it's coming to Michigan. Correct? The fact of the matter is, God's greatness shows up when we are at our worst when we do not know what to do, we do not know where the answers will come. And it's amazing to think we come into this world as the weakest possible existence. And as we go out of this world, he reminds us again, you cannot depend on yourself. And the debate in, the, in, the, in America right now is we have this young lady on the, on the West Coast that says she doesn't want to suffer and die. Why? She wants to take her own life. She wants to take a pill that ends it. Why? Because it's risk. It's pain. It's suffering. I don't want that. I want it out of my, out of my life. I don't want to live that. God says, no, that's, that's, that's not what it's about. I spent a lot of time thinking through what it meant and what it means to be a servant leader as we challenge men and women to give up their current lifestyle. As we sat before 20 men uh, two years ago as we began training in Ecuador and sat before 20 men and I said to those men, some of you will have to give up your professions. You will have to change your profession to be able to accommodate what God is calling you to do in the church. The church is not going to pay you. But you will have to sacrifice your, your profession, your current profession, 
to be able to accommodate hours and lifestyle to, to be able to minister within the church. And it's amazing, out of the four guys that are, that are working together as a team, two of them had to do that. One of them had to give up a tenured position as a teacher. One had to give up, he was a vice minister over uh, public works in the southern part of Ecuador. He gave that up. And they put themselves at risk financially to be able to become servant leaders. Because servant leader understands that he is willing or she is willing to give up all relationships and resources and give them to God. And say, I cannot manage these. These are not, these are not under my management. They need to be yours. I'm not going to worry about my family. I'm not going to worry about my resources. I'm going to place those into your hands because that's where they are best managed. A servant leader understands that they're willing to risk it all to be able to help complete and fulfill and accomplish the mission of God here. And that means they live redemptively. They are all about redemptive relationships and pouring themselves out for the benefit of others. Pouring themselves out for the benefit of others. This morning in the few minutes that we have, I want to share with you very quickly from the, from the lives of two people in Scripture, Aquila and Priscilla, or as Luke and is repeated many times, Priscilla and Aquila, how they lived out what it means and what it, what it meant to be a servant leader. Number one, I want to show you that they were willing to push themselves beyond their knowledge and their experience. They, as servant leaders, as a man and a woman, they were willing to push themselves beyond and let themselves get pushed by God beyond their knowledge and their experience. As servant leaders, they were willing to be pushed and push themselves beyond physical comfort. They were willing to be uncomfortably physically. And as servant leaders, they were willing to push themselves beyond their personal safety and that of their spouse or their family. Turn with me to, to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Now, historically, we know that Paul lays out quickly here through his life and his missionary journeys the people that uh, he comes in contact. Luke writes it down and records this for us, the many people that he came in contact. We're not going to focus in on Paul, but we understand to give a little background here that anybody that had contact with Paul became mobilized. Anybody that, that touched Paul's lives, Paul's life became mobilized. He lived redemptively. Every relationship was, was a redemptive relationship. Uh, Acts chapter 18 Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Then he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Priscilla and Aquila were Jews. They lived in Rome. They lived in Rome. And because of the persecution of the, of the emperor over the Jews, they fled. And they fled to Corinth. And while they were there making tents, because they made tents, that was their living, that's how they ate, they had contact with Paul, who Paul as well was a tent maker to support himself in the ministry. And they had contact with him. We understand that through this contact, this couple comes to Christ. I believe that they came to Christ. We understand that their time with Paul in this city was about 18 months. 18 months, not very long. Now, considering that Paul witnessed to them every day for, for a couple weeks, sat beside them and witnessed to them over and over again. Let's say that within two months, they came to Christ. Let's say within two months, they came to Christ. 
were baptized, and Paul began to disciple them for 16 months. Now, you'd say 16 months within our context culturally isn't a very long time. 16 months goes by very quickly. But if you flip over, if you flip over to chapter 19, I'm sorry, let's go back up to 18 for a second in verse 18. Verse 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed to Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Saturia because of a vow he had taken. Then he arrived in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila immediately in Ephesus after 16 months of training. 16 months of training. They had gone from nothing in Christ, lost, to becoming believers, to being discipled, submitting themselves to the work, and Paul mobilizing them and dropping them off in a different city. So the context here is they went from Rome, they went to Corinth, and they went to Ephesus. And Paul drops them off in Ephesus, and he doesn't just drop them off in Ephesus and say, hey, see ya. He drops them off as church planters. We understand that they were church planters. They were part of the house church movement. The church was based on that, that people met in homes. We understand historically there were probably about 30 people to each home. We understand that historically it wasn't a good time to be a, a church leader. Christians weren't looked at favorably. But we know that Priscilla and Aquila were servant leaders. They pushed themselves beyond their their knowledge, beyond their experience, and were willing to be mobilized. With a little bit that they knew, they understood that it was not dependent upon their ability, but God coming through, showing up, and working through them. Today we are focused on accumulative knowledge and experience. We think that knowledge and experience equals spiritual maturity and effectiveness. But I can tell you some of the most godly men, some of the most godly women, some of the most effective people in ministry that I know have very little knowledge, have very little experience. One of my most important periods in my life was after I graduated from college and began to work with a man who worked for Whirlpool in the southern part of Michigan. He was a Puerto Rican, and he spent every night, every night after work, he went from one migrant camp to another, and he began to witness to the Mexicans. He was a computer engineer, and he went from one migrant camp to the other, and I followed that man, and I watched him, and I learned from him. As he poured himself out, as he cried, and as he gave, and as he sacrificed his time with his kids, with his wife, And they gave themselves over, working full-time at Whirlpool, and every night and every weekend to plant the church. And I learned that this guy had not been to some fancy seminary, had not studied in some recognized Bible college or institute. But he had, wow, an understanding of what it meant to to have God show up in somebody who relied 100% on him. And as we've worked with men and women, we've taught them and said, it's not about the knowledge. It first is about the humility and the submission 
that God, that God will show up and work through you. We don't diminish the work of training people in the Word of God. But if, if all I give them is knowledge and fill up their head and their heart is not there and they don't understand that it's all about submission and humility before God and it's all about God working through them, that they cannot change one person. They cannot plant one church that will have eternal impact. But it's about God working in them and working through them and doing for them and doing through them what they could never do for themselves and for others. Amen. Amen. Salvation states, and Paul says this in Philippians, that if we were saved by grace and mercy, we were never, ever, ever able to do for ourselves what God has done for us. He says, continue to work out your salvation. It's not about earning it. It's about letting the same work that saved you now sustain you and work through you. To continue to do through you what you could never do for yourself or through yourself. Servant leader, that, that means that I go beyond my knowledge and my experience and I rely on the fact that God has got to come through for me. I don't trust on that. I trust in Him. Amen. And that gives a confidence that's eternal. That's eternal. Well, it's amazing to understand that Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, not only were willing to go beyond their experience and knowledge, but place themselves in great discomfort. We don't have many references, but we have a few. We have a few references in Scripture where Paul makes reference to them because he loved them so much. Back in 18, verses 18 and 21, when I read to you, we know that their discomfort, they were willing to open up their home. We understand that culturally, as Jews, they were in Asia Minor. We know that they still participated in the synagogues and still related to people that were from the Jewish faith. But we also understand that Paul recognizes them later on as having been... Uh, men and, a man and a woman that were used to reach the Gentiles. We understand that in the church in Ephesus, there was great persecution. But yet they opened their home. And Paul makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you go there real quick. In verse 19. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets in their home. So does the church that meets in their home. So in 16 months, this couple has gone way beyond their accumulative knowledge. Their discipleship process. The guy, the man that, that was their discipler, their guy drops him off in a foreign city and says, See ya. Stay here and start a church. And they do it. They open up their home in a very hostile environment. They open up their home possibly to 30 people coming in and out. 30 people coming in and out. Mixing culture. Trying to understand. Many times, I don't know how many of you have tried to go to a different culture, not spoke the language, not eaten the food, not dealt with the sicknesses. But it, it's trying. It's difficult. But to sit down and to begin to love on people that don't think like you, that don't act like you, and deal with their children, and deal with their difficulties that they brought to you, their past, their bad marriages, their destroyed finances, their rebellious kids, and all their problems that come with it. This couple was, was willing to give over physical comfort. That didn't just mean opening up their home and letting people come in and having to feed them having to take care of them, but it meant hours of sitting with them, comforting them, 
counseling them, giving up time with their family, time of things that they would normally like to do, whether it was playing soccer or whatever. They were willing to give up those things to invest in people's lives. Physical discomfort. Goes everything against what we want in our flesh, but it goes right back to what Paul, what Christ said. He says, if you want to, to be a follower of mine, you must what? Act selflessly. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You want to do these things? Get rid of that. Give it over. Follow me because I've given up everything. You want to talk about physical discomfort? Try sleeping on the ground. And where are you and I in this? If we've all been given the same expectations, if you've been called with the same call that I've been called, and that is to participate in the mission of God, and if you've been called to be a servant leader, somebody who has a profession, somebody who works, in many years you've maybe defined your life by that work, and I want to tell you that scripture dictates and says that you are not to define your life by what you do in this world. What defines you is your service and your life in Him. What this is over here enables you. God uses that, but that is not who you are. We professionalize church and we professionalize ministry for way too long. If you go back historically, the church was never to be that way. It was to be mobilized. Everybody sharing the same weight. Everybody sharing the same responsibility. Everybody under the same expectation. It's amazing to think that as Aquila and Priscilla were willing to go beyond their knowledge and their experience. They were willing to go beyond their physical comfort. But they were able to place also their physical safety. Go over to Romans chapter 16. We have another reference here from Paul. In verse 3, Romans chapter 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. They risked, there's that word, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. They risked it. I had been in Ecuador for a few years and had the opportunity to go to Quito. And there was a guest house in Quito for missionaries. And I was sitting at breakfast with an older gentleman. I think he was in his early 80s. And somebody had said really quickly at breakfast that this gentleman had been most of his life in Ecuador reaching the Hibaro Indians, which are the headhunters of, and they're the ones that shrink the heads. And he had been translating the Bible for them for his whole adult life. And so whenever I heard something like that, man, I wanted to sit down and talk. So everybody got up and left the breakfast table, and I just sat there. And he looked up after he got done eating his oatmeal, and he's, he asked me some questions about my ministry and where I was from. And then he said, let me tell you a story. And he shared a story with me that impacted me, and it's, it's, it's stamped on my brain. I will never forget it. He said, one day a friend of mine took me up in the airplane that he owned. He was part of Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and he would shuttle us to different places in the jungle. And he took me that day. I wasn't sure why. But he took me up and he flew me over a section of the jungle that was unknown. Not known to many people. Shell Oil Company had built a, an outpost there because they were trying to find spots where they could uh, drill for more oil. But the Indians had come out and they had killed the workers. And so Shell Oil Company had abandoned that site. But a group of men 
were looking to reach the Indians in that area, the dangerous Indians, the same Indians that had killed the workers. They were looking to reach those Indians. So one of the families was moving their family there. Not just going by himself. He was taking his wife and his kids, and they were going to live at this outpost. They were going to homeschool their kids, and they were going to try to reach out to these Indians. And as they flew over the site, the pilot turns to this guy and says, what do you think about that? And this guy said, I I quickly said to him, I think that's irresponsible. I think that's putting his family at risk, and that's not wise. He said he turned the plane, took me back and dropped me off, and I never saw him again. Because those men died. They were murdered by the Albanians. He said, I lost my opportunity to die for Christ because I wasn't willing to take a risk. The guy was 80-something years old, and that's a story he shared with me. And that happened when he was probably in his late 20s. That marked his whole life. You and I look around as Americans and we say we are not willing to go and place ourselves in a position where we might find ourselves in harm's way. But I find it hard to believe, and this is a struggle I struggle with, but I find it hard to believe that Christ has called us to walk in his steps. And we can sing the songs and we can read the verses and we can feel great as long as we're sitting here. But the moment we're asked to put ourselves or let our children go into a place, we step back and say, that's crazy. But the backs of our church were built on the risks of others. The backs of men and women that were willing to go out and pour their lives out without thinking about themselves. And we applaud that, but we say, not me. Not me. Exposing ourselves to the position that the gospel would place us in. I won't even go to my neighbor because he might get upset or offended. I won't even talk to my coworker. I won't even take a stand because I'm afraid of what that might mean to me, let alone personal safety. I saw on the news the other day that they were applauding the, the Christian missionaries who were going over to West Africa. And the unbelieving news commentators were just saying how amazing that would be for somebody to go over and place themselves in harm against a disease with 50 to 90% mortality rate. For people they do not know, a country that is not their own, that is so foreign to a world, but that's not foreign to us. The one who saved you and me did exactly that. He placed himself at risk. When the plan was laid out, laid out between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it had R written all over it. He would place himself in the arms of somebody who he created in a position of an infant, in a culture that was foreign, in a place that was unfriendly. And throughout his whole existence as a man, he would walk against the tide of our culture, and he would swim upstream, and he would receive abuse. And he would call every man and woman that would come after him to live and walk the same. The power of our church is not based on the shoulders of men and women who look for refuge and comfort. It's based on the shoulders of men and women who are willing to be prepared to be servant leaders and pour themselves out, even even if it means their own personal safety. And even if it means 
personal safety of their children. Amen? Amen. There's coming a time when the church is going to be faced in America with decisions that we've never been faced before. When it will mean that standing up for Christ and representing Him in this world in one of the most Christian places like Grand Rapids, well, your sacrifice will be great. It might mean this morning that God has been calling you to do something that you have resisted from the very beginning. He has placed a call and a spark in your heart that you have sensed that He wants more from you, but you have resisted. You want security, you want safety. I would ask you this morning to risk it all because that's the safest place you can be because it's not about here and now, it's about eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the men and women that have risked, risked it all for our, our lives, for our beliefs, and pushed your church forward. Thank you for Aquila and Priscilla, the very few verses that we have in Scripture, but to have their names written, recorded, because they were servant leaders, using, spending their lives for your honor and your glory, for your mission, for your cause. God, I pray that you would continue to put a passion in our hearts to, to live that.